0: I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Keith Weinstein today, who I had the privilege of interviewing a few years ago to talk about supporting mental health initiatives in the LGBTQ community. Keith has just been recognized for his fantastic work as a positive role model for LGBTQ by the prestigious National Diversity Awards. And um, it's brilliant to talk to you today, Keith. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm very good, thank you Emma. Thank you so much for, Giving me this opportunity to talk to you today, oh. and thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, I'm I'm still sort of full of excitement and surprise that uh, at the grand old age of sixty, I get you know an award for being a positive role model LGBT. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still enjoying very much sort of the comments and feedback that I'm getting from colleagues and friends and family. So yeah, it's uh, it's really lovely to be here. Oh,
0: fantastic! Well, it's it's all very well deserved. I love that I love that you're still so surprised by it um but let, let's talk about obviously the instigation of our talk today is I wanted to celebrate LGBTQ plus history month um which I find a really important month and shouldn't go unmarked and I thought what better way than to have a chat with you um and to understand why why the month is important to you
1: well it's a very good question I mean I think First and foremost, it's important to me because certainly when I was sort of growing up as a, a young gay boy up in Yorkshire in the 70s and 80s, the idea of a LGBT History Month just wasn't on the radar at all. I mean, nobody talked about LGBT issues. Certainly gay issues were, you know, um, only talked about as ridicule and disdain, really. Um when I was growing up, the only sort of gay people, and even then there was a lot of denial about if they were gay or not, was sort of like comedians on television and in in situation comedies, that kind of thing. And, you know, people tended to be laughed at. And, uh, yeah, so I think going back to your question about the importance of LGBT History Month, as I've grown older, obviously you've sort of realised that so many people, gay people, LGBT people from our community, have contributed such positive things, not just for, like, the gay community, but for society and the world at large. I mean, you know, scientific developments, help with, um, you know, breaking the uh, code um, in the Second World War, human rights issues, health issues, you know, wonderful things that, that, that people from the LGBT community have contributed to, but have not been acknowledged. In fact, they've been ignored. And it's only now in recent years where, you know, people have started promoting and talking about the wonderful things that LGBT people have done, not just for our community, but for mankind, humankind.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I I do find it amazing that within our lifetime, we've seen such a, hopefully a fantastic turn, uh, the tide has turned in relation to LGBT Um, individuals, like you say, during our lifetime, but I've, I've seen some great material posted this month that gives voice and visibility to raise awareness of sexual orientation and gender identity, equality and diversity. And I know that over the, at least over the past four decades, this has been at the forefront of much of your work. And can I ask where your work in promoting visibility and awareness within the HIV and AIDS community started?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a long time ago. Um, I suppose it sort of started way back, back in the '80s when I first came out to my parents. I think um, it was quite a difficult, uh, difficult experience, as it is for a lot of people, you know, way back then. But also, no, it's still not an easy thing to do. Uh, but hopefully, people are much more tolerant and understanding. Uh, back in the '80s, it was much tougher, and. Um, I had the help of my sisters to sort of, uh, sort of pave the way and help me sort of come out to my parents. And I think when I did come out to my parents, I came out very much right, okay, this is who I am. This is how you brought me up to be honest and authentic and be my true self. So here am I saying I'm gay. And they didn't, well, certainly my mom um, reacted to it really, really, really quite badly. And it was really quite difficult. Um, I'd been in a play um, called A Patriot for me, which is really weird because I'm I'm studying at the moment and this play suddenly comes up in some of the stuff that I'm researching. It's like, oh, my God, this is really spooky. But my parents thought that the play that I was in had turned me gay because it was about a gay character. and They thought oh, it was the play that's turned me a bit, bit queer, basically. But of course it wasn't. I mean, I think, you know, I've always... I've always been different. I've always known that I was different. And certainly at primary school and at middle school, I was bullied and called a "puff" and, you know, all of these sorts of things and words that I didn't even know because I was a child. I didn't even really understand. Um, so I think there's, there, there was um an innate sort of uh, resilience there for me to sort of stand up and be who I am. And of course, my parents, you know, are partly due to that because the way they brought me up, because they, you know, they had values and um, beliefs and, um, you know, things like truth were really important in my family and being authentic and being your authentic self. So, really, I got that side from them. And then, of course, I've used it to sort of really, I suppose, fight for other people. You know, I've been bullied. I don't like being bullied. I hate bullies. And so any any kind of bullying, regardless if it's about gender or race or sexuality, I really want to take those things on. As far as getting involved in my the work was concerned, I, I was an actor and um, I spent a lot of time in the 80s unemployed. And uh, also having come out um, at the same time as AIDS had sort of raised its nasty little head, and I didn't know anything about it. I was completely green, naive, knew nothing. But I saw a little advert in um, a free gay paper, I think it was called Capital Gay, where they were looking for volunteers to help because it was a self-help group, but because it was a self-help group of people with HIV and AIDS, they were actually dying. People were dying. It was awful. If you In those bad bad days in the 80s, it was awful. And so I thought, well, I've got a lot of time on my hands, and um, I also had access to a little van that I used to drive around selling sandwiches. And I thought, well, I could put that to good use because the guy used to let me park the van let me take it home and park it at home. So I thought, well, I can put that to good use. And so I joined um, an organization called Frontliners and got involved in all sorts of things. Everything from cooking, you know, lunch. I had to cook lunch once because the person who was supposed to do it didn't come in. So it's like, oh, I've got to cook lunch for 20-odd people, through to... Um, you know, World AIDS Day, collecting boxes outside theatres. Um, some of the, the harder, more challenging things were like collecting um, people's belongings where they died and they, their family wanted to give them away and um, to sort of use for fundraising. I also did a spell of budding as well where I went into the Westminster Hospital and sort of met this young man for the first time who was 22. His parents had disowned him, kicked him out. Uh, my parents didn't do that to me, but I felt a huge empathy for this young man who was literally in the last throes of AIDS-related illnesses, and he was covered in KS lesions, and it was awful. It was terrifying. Um, but, but but the trick I found was to look him right in the eyes, and when I looked him right in the eyes, I actually saw him, you know, not the disfigurement from the cancer, but I saw him in the eyes, and I think that's, that's an image that has stayed with me always and 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 in in a way i've used that with other other people that that i've come across in my life where i actually try and look into the soul into the real person and forget about color forget about disfigurement forget about difference but actually see the human being for what they are and you know it made a profound effect um getting to know that young man who i spent you know six weeks visiting him daily and when he died it was traumatic and really painful and my parents didn't understand because like this wasn't a boyfriend or a partner or a relative or even a friend. I mean, I'd become friends with him. i would befriended him over the six weeks, but yeah, it had a profound effect. And I think, you know, the work sort of, that work as a volunteer, somehow I ended up working in the NHS uh, for a couple of years and working at the Cobra Centre and the Chelsea Westminster Hospital. And then from there I was asked Um, if I was interested in going to the National AIDS Trust to help um, somebody organise World AIDS Day, and that was back in 1993. And I went for three months, but ended up being there for, well, about 13 years, actually, um, and organising World AIDS Day right across the country and supporting people with HIV and organisations to actually raise awareness around HIV and AIDS awareness, using um, World AIDS Day as a platform to, to do that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I remember in the 80s, those tombstone adverts on the BBC, which just filled people with dread, really, and terror as to what was happening and didn't help at all. There was no positive messaging coming out. And it wasn't until later on when um, Princess Diana, Lady Diana, first took that, that chap's hand and held his hand and broke down some barriers. And fantastic that you've continued to promote, you know, the positiveness and um, even even last, I think it was this week. There was a, a photo of Prince Harry uh, getting tested for HIV and urging people to do it, and just saying, you know, it's, we can live with it, but you have to be aware.
1: Those those tombstone adverts. I mean, certainly in hindsight, I mean, I, I would hope that health promotion would never go down that route again. Um, I mean, they were terrifying. They absolutely impacted on my life impacted on my sex life as well because it really absolutely terrified me and in some respects probably is the reason why I wanted to to do the volunteering at frontline is just to understand what the transmission routes were and how I could protect myself and protect others and I I certainly learned that from from men who were HIV positive who who literally told me you know you sort of sit down and they would explain you know what the transmission routes were because you know back then as Today, sometimes people do sort of believe misinformation about, you know, that kissing um, can transfer HIV, you know, all of this mythology, which is ridiculous because it's the sort of stuff that in the 1930s, my mom uh, would, would, would tell me when she thought back to when she was at school, the sorts of misinformation and the myths that were that were around sex and because you know also because people don't talk about it properly. You know, it's all it's all well and good to do the seaside jokes and all that kind of stuff and the tongue in cheek. But you know, really people should be talking about sexual activity and also how to keep keep safe and about relationships. And of course, when I was at school, we didn't get any of that. And certainly when Maggie Thatcher came in and clause 28, all of that um w- w- was completely sort of um well illegal, basically, even though nobody was ever prosecuted. Yeah. And you know. Although we've had great advances over the last 40, 50 years, we can't be complacent, Emma, because, you know, there are things bubbling away. We can see the sort of transphobia which is happening. And, you know, in my view, if they come after trans people, they'll be coming after other sort of LGBT people as well. And, And so we can never be sort of complacent about that. On the Diana uh, bit, I mean, yeah, I mean, Princess Diana did huge amounts for HIV. And I had the privilege, working at National AIDS Trust, of of working with her quite closely on two concerts of hopes that we did in 93 and 94. And, you know, talk about attention. You know, we didn't really have to do very much around, you you know, encouraging the press to come along because they would. And, you know, you'd get the BBC, ITV, Newsnight, Breakfast Television would cover stuff it was amazing and I think you know the very fact that we we lost her was a big had a massive impact on National AIDS Trust but what we have seen in her sons her legacy is that both of her sons have done such amazing work and continue to do amazing work? Prince Harry, in particular, as you say, doing doing the HIV testing because you know there's been a big campaign to remind people that HIV is still around um, and it can, can still be a risk, but also that there are great medical advances. You know, medical advances that I couldn't have dreamed about when I was working at National AIDS Trust. I mean, when I I left in two thousand and five, and we were still working trying to get a vaccine. You know, uh, with Gates and the International Vaccine Initiative. Ironically you know the world seemed to come up with a vaccine for COVID and I know HIV is much more complex than than, uh, SARS is but even so you know we've managed to get the whole world working on a COVID vaccine whereas with HIV and AIDS we're still working on that even though we've got amazing uh, medications available now to sort of you know keep people well and actually take their viral load so it's undetectable so they can't actually pass on HIV to a partner If you know which is I would never have done that you know back in the 80s and 90s I, I thought I wouldn't see it in my lifetime really. and I think you know if I'm honest part of the thing in the back of my brain back in the 80s was that I probably would get HIV and die because that's what everybody else that's what, what everybody else around me was doing and thank goodness, you know, I'm still here today, and there are still people I know from those days that are still alive, uh, thanks to medical science and to medication. And I think for that, we've got to be grateful.
0: Definitely. Well, you you've continued to work um, extremely positively in the education side, um, and in particular, focus on health initiatives um, uh, that deal with mental well being, and um, in particular, you co-founded. Uh, health Initiatives for Youth, and also now sit as a trustee for MenTalk Health UK. And I just wondered if we could talk about those two organisations.
1: Well, uh, yes, thank you. I mean, Health Initiatives for Youth. Yeah, that was quite a while. So we're looking at the late sort of uh, 90s, early 2000s. And uh, that all came about, actually, because I was doing a World AIDS Day and the theme was around young people. And I really wanted to know what other people were doing around the world. And um, I was given a few contacts, given a contact in, in San Francisco. And this was an organization called Health Initiatives for Youth. And I was actually going on my first ever trip to San Francisco. It would probably be 94, 95, somewhere around that time. And um, I was told, you have to talk to this young guy called Clint Walters. He's absolutely amazing. You know, he's so good. You've really got got to meet with him. And so I arranged to meet this guy called Clint Walters in a little cafe on Market Street near the Castro. And this young guy comes in. He's over six foot tall, blonde, very American looking, comes in, opens his mouth, and it's like, Oh, my God, you're English. (laughs) And he was on like an exchange visit. Clint was on an exchange visit. And so he was doing some stuff, um, working with um, health initiatives for youth. And as it turned out, I think he was sort of like researching what he could bring back to the UK. I think that was really that was the basis of why he was there. And so we had this meeting, which was supposed to be just a coffee and a bit of cake, maybe and for an hour and you know six hours later we're still talking but by this time we've moved into several we've moved around several bars in (laughs) san francisco because remember this is my first trip and he's been living there so he knows all the best places to go and we're standing at the bar and we're having drinks and he's being cheeky because he's like 18 you know 18 years of age and i was probably in my 30s by this time and um clint's story was that on his first sexual experience with an older gay man, unprotected sex, once HIV positive, And he was like 17. And one of the problems being 17 and being a young gay man in England was where do I go for help? And when I do go for help, everybody around me is much older because he's still a kid, he's 17. Anyway, uh, by this time he is 18, probably... Uh, probably illegal in America for drinking but anyway you know he didn't care so uh, we'll skip over that bit it's only just occurred to me that you know he was so young (laughs) but you know getting me into trouble as he often did as we developed our friendship often take me out go to heaven and all these sorts of places and get me into all sorts of trouble but uh, anyway so I met him and then I came back to England and then we kept in touch and then when he returned back to UK He asked me if I would help him set up a charity because he needed three trustees and he had two two friends of his. And then he asked me. uh, And of course, I agreed. And actually, whilst we were doing that, we were also, you know, I was involving him in my work. He became a poster boy for UNAIDS. Uh, I have got, I saw an image of him the other day in my, on my Facebook where he's with Ricky Martin. And he was <laughs> so disappointed because he didn't get to meet Ricky Martin. They just sit but, but Ricky Martin was involved. And so he's on this beautiful poster with a young woman on this side, Clint Clint on, on the other side. And then this picture of um, Ricky Martin in the middle, uh, you know, involved him in stuff I was doing with MTV, involved him. And stuff I was doing for World AIDS Day celebration of life he would come and sort of uh, speak about his his lived experience which is so important I, I, it's been a constant throughout my my working life actually is working with people with lived lived experience you know if I tell somebody else's story it's different I, I don't have HIV so I could never say I have HIV but having Clint tell his story huge impact so we set up health initiatives for youth. And what health initiatives youth was doing was really sort of supporting young people in particular, especially when they needed to do clinic visits or where they were going for HIV testing, because obviously back in those days, it's really quite a scary thing to do. Less scary to do now because you can actually order an HIV testing kit online and have it delivered. You can do it in the privacy of your own home if you don't want to go to one of the excellent NHS sexual health clinics around, around the country. But we set up this charity, um, but I could only be a trustee for a couple of years because in our articles of association, we'd actually written in that, you know, the upper limit had to be age 28. And oh. I think it was past 28, because it's health initiatives for youth. So it's like, you know, you need to have young people on the board. You need to have young people working in the organisation. You need to have young people volunteering and... Carrying out the message of, of awareness. So, you know, I reluctantly, or not resigned, uh, but was still very much in touch and, and involved in the charity and its fundraising efforts and all those sorts of things. Uh, sadly, um, Clint died quite a few years ago now and not from age related illness as well, which was a bit of a, you know, ironic really. And uh, so had some heart problems, but because he was so fit, he used to play tennis for his county of Oxford. And yeah, I suppose I regard him very much as a, as the little brother I never had, you know, that was the the relationship we had. Very feisty, very argumentative, you know, wouldn't do as he was told. <laughs> we used to fall out about, you know, campaigns that I was doing and why are you doing this or why are you not doing this? And we should have more of this. And sometimes not always understanding some of the politics behind some of the funding issues that I had to deal with working at National AIDS Trust. But always, you know, we always made up, always got on. And yeah, and I I, I miss him. Very much he's got a very special place in my heart
0: um, oh, I'm so, so sorry to hear
1: that I mean on the lived experience thing as well just going back to your early uh thing about Prince Harry and Prince William I mean one of the things that, that Diana could never do and she was a fantastic um, ambassador she could never say I know what it's like to be HIV positive because she wasn't what's interesting about Harry and William is that you know in recent years they've talked very openly about their mental health problems. Which is amazing mm. because that's what I've been doing in my work for the last sort of uh, 12 years when I was working at Mind on Time to Change was supporting people with lived experience to actually speak about it and to be open about it. And that's exactly what they, they do. They talk about their own mental health issues quite openly. And, you know, as role models and inspirational leaders, what a wonderful thing for them to do but you know also there are thousands of people right across the country myself included because i talk about you know how my mental health was you know has been really impacted when my father died for example i mean i thought i was going crazy you know mm. thankfully i had a very supportive gp and i went and talked said this is how i'm feeling. this is what's happened um referred me to uh, for psychological tests the psychiatrist says you're grieving you know this is this is grief that you're dealing with And I did a a course with Cruz, some therapy Um, with with Cruz. I had some medication for a little while just to help me with some of the anxieties and fears that I was feeling. But you know, the fact that I can share that openly and not have any kind of shame because I have a mental health problem, just as I don't have a shame about the mental health problems that are rife in my family. I mean, when you start talking about it, you realize that my mom had mental health problems and there are good reasons for that because of her childhood. My father had mental health issues. My sister has mental health issues. We talk about it and we deal with it and we support each other. And, you know, I think that's been the real strength of the work around Time to Change and breaking down the stigma and the discrimination, the prejudice that some people have about people with mental health issues. I mean, I've got mental health issues myself, but I know that as a worker, as a manager, it's completely changed the way that I work, you know, with my line reports, you know, I always start my one-to-ones with "How are you?" And if they say fine, I say, "No, really, how are you?" Because you know, I just, you know, this is an opportunity to sort of share, you know, are you overwhelmed? Is everything okay? I think you know, and to have that conversation um, and really sort of support people. I wasn't always like that. I mean, in, in my 20s and 30s, if I was directing people, I'd be really bossy and telling people and, and having no compassion or empathy for why why, why are you late? Why do you, you know, you should you should be on time. Why aren't you delivering? But, you know, over the years, I've learned that, A, that's no way to treat people, yeah. sort of stuff. And also, I have to have empathy and compassion. I've worked with people who sometimes have phoned me on the way to a big event, and I'm really counting on them to be at that event. But they've said, I can't come. I'm too anxious. I'm on the train. I'm going to have to go home. Now, there's no point in me saying, what? You know, how dare you? You've you've really let me down. It's like I have to accept they're having a problem in the same way if they sprained their ankle or they broke their leg or they they twisted their, their, their arm. Yeah, you have to be supportive. And also, not make it worse by making somebody feel guilty because they they, they feel unwell, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's about supporting them. And uh, so I know that this stuff works, and I know that it's changed changed me as a manager. And I would never go back to that old way. Yeah, always not the way to treat people. <laughs> for a start, you know, you've got to treat people with compassion, understanding, and caring. And and when I say ask them and ask them twice, I've got to be prepared as well to listen to listen to the response and being supportive you know i'm not a mental health expert you know my stuff is around communications production events writing all of that kind of stuff but what i can do is actually listen and maybe make a few suggestions of how you know you might want to try this you might want to try, or, or or more importantly this is what i do to manage my mental health so i'm not foisting anything on anybody all i'm doing is showing my lived experience in order to help you
0: yeah i I love the intersectionality here between talking about LGBT issues and then reminding people that everybody has everybody has mental health it's just some people's are good some days and some people's are low some days and it's it's all about the awareness and breaking down the stigma attached to attached to talk I, and I do agree that as soon as the royals young royals started talking about their own mental health you saw a sea change in how people started to approach it and big organizations got behind them and you know particularly in the construction industry which is a very male dominated sector um it saw people start setting up talking shops to allow men to come and talk about how they were feeling Um,
1: that's such a great example you know because a couple of years ago i was asked to go and speak at some construction conference it was an LGBT one and it's like oh my god there are gay people there are LGBT people in building yeah (laughs) Yeah, and there are all these like great big you know fabulous looking people in the room and it's like oh my god you know that was like my unconscious bias was that they'd all be straight that are in construction they'd all be male and they'd all be I don't know sort of I was going to say builders crack a lot, but you know what I mean? That, those sorts of stereotypes about builders. And uh, I was able to talk about it and really encourage the kinds of things, actually, which you're now talking about, Emma, which is about getting people to talk and 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 have care on building sites. Because, you know, I learned lots. I mean, you know, like suicide rates in, in, in construction absolutely shocked me um, and also mental health and you know that that insecurity of jobs especially i think over the last couple of years where a lot of building stuff sort of stopped or was hampered you know all of those things can can, can affect people's mental health you know um, what i've discovered is you know things like divorce or relationship breakdown redundancy you know job insecurity you know uh, losing a parent or parents losing a child yeah um losing a baby that's not even been born I mean all of these things can impact so harshly on on people's mental health and well-being and you know until we talk about these things and I think we are talking much more but until these things are uncovered and and people can talk and accept you know people you know people just don't get over things like that it it takes time and it takes patience and it takes care and understanding for people to get through through those hard times and you know certainly speaking from my own personal perspective when things are really bad it it feels like it will never be over and there's a phrase that that suicide for example is a is a short-term solution for a long-term problem which I heard from somebody who attempted uh, to take their life a couple of times and then got to the point in their life where they realised that that wasn't the solution, That actually working through it and getting the support of other people to get people through those dark periods. Um, and there will be dark periods. I mean, you know, many people may escape them, but for a lot of people, those dark periods do come. And I mean, that's why we need to talk about mental health in, in, as a preventative measure mm-hmm. in order for people not to know there are sources of help out there there are helplines there are people there are self-help groups that can actually help people with their mental health you do not have to deal with a mental health problem on your own i mean there's tremendous support out there it just requires you to sort of look and and just to maybe ask that first question i mean you, you could save a life today by asking how somebody is and then if they say fine which is always a bit suspicious and i always ask again. Yeah, you know, you might just open up a conversation that could just change somebody's life forever by by being prepared to listen to the, to, to to the response, and you know, to maybe just signpost them to Mind or to other helplines or to their GP as a first as a first port of call for getting help with their mental health issues.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because quite often when you're when you're going down that spiral. don't think that there is anything that can help and you might be feeling very lonely with it as well yeah keith the last thing i wanted to talk talk to you about was um in relation to men talk health uk i've seen the fantastic uh, (laughs) t-shirts which are a brilliant bright blue with the mental health uk logo just to finish would you like to tell us about about mental health i think it sounds like a fantastic initiative as
1: well oh absolutely I I would have begged you to let me talk about uh, mental health if you had not asked me the question Uh, because I I recall now you did that was a two-part question about um, hi-fi and mental health yeah Mm -hmm. mental health I mean it is all about men talking about mental health issues uh, but also women because we need women as our allies and as our friends mothers sisters daughters mates all that kind of stuff so you know we we are a feminist organization as far Mm -hmm. as sort of involving and, and having women involved in our in our work and we're actually looking to Um, we're looking for for trustees to make sure that we're very diverse and it's not just male orientated so I just put my cards on the table now um yeah mental health um a group I got involved with very strange actually because um it started with first dates I wasn't on a first date I was watching first dates on tv and there were two guys on there there there's an Irish guy and there was a young black guy and they'd been paired as their date and um during the conversation The Irish guy shouts out, black cock, in this restaurant. Um, And this young guy just carries on chatting and eating. He's not phased by this at all. Then it transpires that the guy is called Damien, who I've since got to know, and he has Tourette's. And people may have seen him on BBC Three. He's done lots of awareness raising around Tourette's. And the young black guy was his model. Um, They start talking about mental health issues. And I'm watching this at home on my sofa and I pick up my phone. I try finding this Damien guy and I find him on Twitter. So I start tweeting saying, I'm watching this First Dates program, bloody, bloody, blah. Thank you so much for talking so sensibly about mental health issues. Yeah. Have you heard of Time to Change? Because that was the campaign I was working on. And he said, yeah, of course I've heard it. And he, he comes back to me on Twitter. It's like, wow, this is fantastic. Comes back to me on Twitter and he says, yeah, of course. He says, I'm actually training to be a mental health nurse oh wow this is amazing so long story short i keep i keep in contact with this guy and then and i start to follow mental health on twitter and one night one early hours i i can't sleep and i'm i'm looking at my phone and there's all these tweets coming from mental health about this podcast it's like oh my god they're doing a podcast now at the same time i was wanting to do a podcast for time to change so i make contact with them and long story short I was at City Lit in London where I was doing a podcast course because I've never made a podcast before. <laughs> and um, so I'm doing this course. And they happened to be up in London. They said, oh, can we come and see you? And I'm, I'm very grand. And I said, oh, well, I've only got half an hour. I said, you know, I'm doing this course. And, you know, if you can fit fit that in, then fine. But otherwise, we'll have to do it another day. Anyway, they, did, they came to City Lit. We went downstairs in a little cafe there, had a coffee. And basically... Uh, Damien and Davey um, helped me with some information about setting up a, a podcast and in fact Davey Shields who is the, one of the presenters on Mental Health Podcast was my first guest on my first Time to Change podcast now I'd all, I I started doing some fundraising and going down to Brighton taking part in Pride also they would invite me to their fundraisers where I could have the stage for 15 minutes to talk about Time to Change which was amazing and then last year, they, they wanted to become a charity. And again, asked me, would you become, um, I think they'd already established the charity. They'd got all the paperwork done, but they wanted to expand the board. And they asked me to become a trustee. And I'm now a trustee of Mentor Health. So any opportunity I have, wear the T-shirt. You know, I, I was in a thing called the Identity Project, which is a photographic exhibition by Chris Jepson I wore the Mentor mental health t-shirt and also on the national diversity awards uh, i also wore the t-shirt on the because you know we want people to know who we are yeah. and basically uh, we provide two organizations uh, mental health first aid training so David shields we employ davy shields now because he's not a trustee we, we we employ him to deliver training and davy and i have uh, uh, started a podcast series a new podcast series. The old ones are still um, on the website. So if you Google Mental Health UK, you'll come to the website, which has just been rebranded. Re- you know, it's all all shiny, sparkly and new. And that's where you'll you'll hear the podcast series. You'll hear the whole um, of the back catalogue of, of episodes. But we've also started introducing some new some new episodes. So I'm really, I just, I think it's amazing how karma and how things come around. You know how. They helped me with my podcast, and then I had them on my podcast, and now I'm sort of co hosting the new Mental Health um, podcast series. So, and hopefully, you know, when with COVID sort of on the run, we get back to normal, we'll have events and activities at the moment, predominantly around the Brighton, Sussex area, and, and we'll certainly be looking for events and activities to get our volunteers involved in uh, around fundraising but you know we've just managed one of our fundraisers and our treasurer has managed to get income coming into the charity which is amazing which means we now can afford certainly for the next six months to a year to employ somebody to work three days a week which means me as a trustee you know i've I've got my day job i'm doing a degree i'm also a trustee it just means it gives me a bit of a breathing space because we've got somebody who is actively working to keep the charity going and that's you know amazing really
0: well that that's fantastic and uh, we're obviously going to send this out as a podcast so we'll put a link to mental health
1: oh yes please well. yeah. thank you
0: Keith it's been fantastic to talk to you today all it's done really is underlined to me the importance of just talking raising awareness and educating ourselves regarding lgbt issues mental health issues as well Um, can i just
1: say emma as well one of the things that i from which i did for lgbt history month was that i wrote a blog at work and i was i it was very personal at first i was just going to focus on some heroes of mine from from gay history like peter Tatchell, for example Mm. but i found myself writing some really personal stuff and when i pressed the button i thought oh my god what you know have i have i exposed myself have i you know all I can say is that I've had the most amazing feedback from colleagues, both straight and from the cis world. You know, very, my, you know, my chief executive wrote to me saying, "What an excellent blog," um, and he's certainly not gay, uh, but gay colleagues did. And I, I would just urge people, you know, to think about those sorts of things moving forward about sharing your honest and authentic self. Um, And encouraging a sense of belonging in your workplace, because that's certainly, that's the work I continue to do in my new workplace, where I'm wanting diversity, inclusion, equity, as well as equal opportunities, but also an important aspect for me is belonging, so I feel that I belong in my workplace, that I'm not the outsider that I, I have felt in other places, so I would really encourage people to be brave and to, you know, if they feel like it, to contribute to LGBT History Month or Pride Week or anything like that by sharing some of their own personal story. Because especially younger people, they don't realize that, you know, back in those days, like in the late 80s, that you could lose your job, lose your home, be refused accommodation. You know, I've, I've, I've had eviction notices served on me because my partner and I were gay. This was back in the late 1980s. Mm. And you think that's, that's so wrong. But when I talk to young people about it, they look at me as if I'm making this up, as if it's something from the Victorian age. And it's not, it's like, no, this is in my lifetime. These are the things that I've experienced. Yeah. So, you know, I just think it helps just to share that. And I think probably that's my legacy and why I'm so proud to win the award was because, you know, I I take it into my personal life and my work life. And being a role model, you know, I don't need to be on the front pages of The Times or get an OBE or anything like that. It's more about having conversations with people and just changing people's attitudes and behaviour, sometimes one at a time.
0: Yeah. Sharing stories, I think, is such a powerful, underrated um, part of what we can do to support other people. Absolutely. Thank you you for sharing yours, Keith.
1: Thanks, Emma. (laughs)